This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR, where we interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Nick Eberstadt about the historic Singapore summit on June 12 between President Donald Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un. Dr. Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. He's written extensively on demographics and economic development and is a longtime watcher and commentator on international security on the Korean Peninsula and in Asia. He's testified before Congress, served as a consultant to various U.S. government agencies, written many books on both domestic and international issues, and serves as the senior advisor to the National Bureau of Asian Research. Dr. Eberstadt will discuss his key takeaways from the summit, what the summit means for U.S. allies and other stakeholders in the region, and what he'd like to see from the Trump administration moving forward. He'll also share his prediction for how long the summit agreement will last and his pick for the single best volume on Korea ever written. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Asia Insight. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Dan. So let me start off with a question about you. So you're a political economist and a demographer. Is that fair to say? Kind of, yeah. (laughs) How did you get interested in North Korea? Uh, Completely by accident. Uh, I wanted to do my PhD dissertation back during the Cold War on progress against poverty in a communist and non-communist country. And by the process of elimination, I was backed into the Korean Peninsula where a sort of a uh, natural experiment was underway. And if I had any idea what a difficult dissertation this would have been, I would have run away and found something much easier to do. But I was stubborn and foolish, and so here we are today. (laughs) And in a sense, the dissertation continues. Uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) New chapters. New chapters. So let's start at the top. What should the United States try to achieve on the Korean Peninsula? Well, the the U.S. Uh, security interests, I think, are to promote uh, peace, prosperity, uh, stability, and the uh, extension of liberal international order and liberal domestic order. Uh, since the North Korean state is programmatically opposed to absolutely every one of those tenets, we've got a little tiny problem in dealing with North Korea there. Uh, My own view is that we could uh, work towards a North Korea threat reduction policy or program if we put our minds to it, but for much, almost all of the post-Cold War era, we haven't really wanted to look at North Korea plainly because we've wanted to imagine a much more tractable negotiating partner. So fast forwarding to the historic summit, June 12th last week in Singapore, what were your key takeaways? Since North Korea practices win, we win, you lose diplomacy, There is no win-win in North Korean diplomacy. Somebody was going to lose. The way it seems to have turned out, looking at it almost a week later, North Korea emerged as the victor, and it was a pretty big victory. 
it's not even clear to me yet whether the uh, U.S. administration recognizes the dimensions of its losses at Singapore, but as those sink in, I think there's going to have to be some sort of damage control and salvage approach to the new realities that we set in motion. Was that a surprising result to you? I was mystified by this, Dan. Uh, the reason I was mystified is because up until uh, last month, uh, President Trump seemed to me to be the first U.S. president in the post-Cold War era who had more or less a coherent strategy for dealing with the North Korean threat, uh, and a strategy for dealing with the North Korean threat that actually promised to make it smaller rather than larger, as had happened for four previous presidencies. Uh, so when, uh, when America came to Singapore to meet North Korea, and the American administration accepted uh, so many of North Korea's terms that it almost looked as if the joint statement could have been drafted by the North Korean foreign ministry, that was a special shock. Then if we look into our crystal ball, recognizing precedents, what can we expect from the North Koreans going forward? Well, um, there is, there is a non-zero possibility that the North Korean government will undertake a bold switchover. They always talk about our undertaking a bold switchover. Uh, there is a possibility that there would be a radical change of approach on the part of the North Korean government, so radical that the DPRK would agree to CVID, to complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement of its nuclear program, and agree to what we would call peace on the Korean Peninsula rather than what they would call peace, which is the eradication of the opponent. Um, we can't say that that's impossible, but it still looks as if those propositions would be fundamentally destabilizing to the North Korean state, given the logic of that state, given the claims that they make for their authority. Um, if the North Korean state does not turn an absolutely new leaf, I think we have to assume that they will be racing for um, a larger nuclear arsenal and a more credible intercontinental ballistic missile inventory faster than they could before the summit. And if I am correct in my assessment, and other people have very different assessments from mine, if I'm, in, if I'm correct in my assessment, the long-term uh, intention of North Korean uh, international policy is not only ultimately unconditional reunification of the peninsula, but before that point, to manufacture a crisis in which it can have a face-off against the United States, a nuclear face-off in which the U.S. blinks uh, in the Korean Peninsula. Call it a fight and win a limited nuclear war against the U.S. and her allies in the peninsula. Uh, if I am correct, uh, the Singapore summit brought that day of truth closer to us. What signifies to you 
that North Korea has such grand ambitions? Well, I do this really strange thing that I admit doesn't happen uh, that much with people who call themselves North Korea uh, watchers. I read what they say. <laughs> um, and um, admittedly, uh, it's, it's a little bit painful sometimes. Um, but it's very important to read the texts. And this is a, something of a lost art in international relations and in international security. But there is a very, very long uh, record, evidentiary record, of North Korean pronouncements, or if you want to call them propaganda, which have an internal coherence to them. They have an internal logic. And they haven't really changed that much from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un. Of course there are um, variations on a theme. And of course there are, there are uh, innovations. But the fundamental march, I think, remains unchanged from June 1950 to the present day. The only thing that differs is modes of execution, capabilities, not intentions. That's fascinating and terrifying. If we're looking for the silver lining, so to back up uh, to the idea that North Korea there's a small chance they could decide to do a switchover. What conditions would you have to see to be convinced that that's the direction they're headed? That's a critical question, and I'm very glad you asked it, because uh, looking for those flashing lights or those indicators is something which outside observers have to be quite attentive to, attentive to that possibility. Uh, for one thing, I don't believe the entire momentum of North Korean international policy could turn on a dime without some sort of explanation. Explanation to the elites, explanation to the subject population. Uh, if some fundamental change in thinking or change in choices were occurring, I think we would see evidence of it in the North Korean media, in KCNA, in Nodong Shinmun, all in international broadcasts and domestic broadcasts, um, that would be a uh, that would be one of the things which I think we would look for. Uh, another thing which we might look for, which would be um, neither necessary but oh, nor sufficient, but perhaps corroborative, would be signs of a change of approach, a change of international approach, in non-nuclear, non-strategic area, for example. North Korea basically has never paid back its foreign debts since its uh, establishment in 1948. We now know from the Soviet archives they didn't pay back their debts to their uh, to the socialist camp. Uh, they didn't pay back their debts to uh, either the Warsaw Pact or to China. They didn't pay them back to Western countries and the Western entities who were foolish enough to lend to the DPRK in the 1970s. Um, however, if North Korea won't honor its commercial contracts, how in the world could we expect them to honor a nuclear pact? Um, making good on its commercial debts, for example, would be a fascinating indicating uh, blinking light to say that in some sense business is being done differently now from like all the time before. Uh, paying back North Korea's foreign debts wouldn't be conclusive proof of an entirely new way of thinking, but it would be a departure from the past that would merit attention. Other things like that. 
So then in the other scenario where North Korea has no intention to denuclearize, some watchers would say that North Korea's uh, intentions for nuclear weapons are primarily defensive. How would you respond to that? Well, any good policy for any government should serve a multiplicity of purposes. And when we root about North Korea's intentions in its uh, nuclear program, we have some people who talk about the importance of legitimizing the regime and other people who talk about its utility for facilitating international military extortion, and other people who focus on the insurance policy regime survival aspect of it, they all overlap. Those aren't mutually exclusive. However, you could accomplish all of those ends with a limited nuclear inventory, which brings us to the question of this year. If that's the case, why did Kim Jong-un in his January 1 New Year Day address, declare that the time of testing of missiles and nukes is over, and now is the time for mass production, for moving to mass production of nukes and missiles. It's very expensive. It's also uh, rather risky internationally. Um, That's far beyond defense sufficiency. So what else is the government trying to accomplish besides those three goals that we mentioned earlier? Moving to mass production of long-range missiles and nukes makes sense if you're planning to have a face-off with the United States. And if you're attempting to break the U.S.-ROK security alliance in the peninsula, um, it makes a lot of sense in in that sort of a case. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the DPRK's policy is... uh, deeply geared towards attempting to sever that tie because after uh, potentially, hypothetically, uh, pushing the U.S. out of the Korean Peninsula, the North Korean side would be much nearer its objective of unconditional reunification on totally its own terms. I mean, Dan, if you and I look at a Korean peninsula without a U.S. security tie for the South, it does not seem to me that it's a slam dunk for North Korea to to absorb the South. Uh, The North Korean population is half the size of the South. Its economy is a fraction of the size of the South. The South is far more technologically sophisticated and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, the South could become a nuclear power very quickly. Uh, So it's not obvious to me that if you put two cats in a bag and tie it up, the North is going to be the one that comes out. However, the North Korean leadership seems to be convinced that that is indeed the case, because from their standpoint, if you read what they say, they are absolutely convinced that the South is spoiled and pampered and rotten, corrupt, and gutless and that they don't have the will to stand up to the North. One of the efforts to counter North Korea's development of its ballistic and nuclear technology were sanctions. Could you share your assessment of how effective sanctions were before the summit and after the summit? Sure. Well, as as I think the international uh, history of sanctions will indicate, coercive uh, economic diplomacy usually fails. Uh, And I think... uh, uh, 
NBR's Rich Ellings actually wrote his dissertation on this and wrote his first book on this. Um, and that's true. But North Korea is a poster child for successful international sanctions because its economy is so distorted and because it is so dependent upon foreign resources, concessional foreign resources, to function at all. That squeezing those flows of resources, I think, promised to have a much bigger impact on North Korean economic performance and on North Korea's uh, attempt to maintain its defense economy than we'd see for practically any other economy in the world today. So the Trump administration's maximum pressure approach, I don't think really has been maximum pressure yet. It's been much more pressure, but nowhere near maximum pressure. That being said, we have some signals that the North Korean uh, leadership is already quite worried about it. Uh, we don't see a lot of obvious signs of uh, crisis being caused by the maximum pressure campaign yet. But partly that, I think, is because we don't know how fast the North Korean regime is spending down its financial and strategic reserves. Everything will look fine until suddenly it doesn't. Now, if the international community redoubles its international sanctions and economic penalties on the DPRK, uh, the moment of discontinuity I just described happens more quickly. If the sanctions are broken and the North Korean state is permitted to fund its race for nukes and missiles as quickly as it would like, the, um, the shelf life of San Francisco uh, gets a little bit smaller. Let's put it that way. And it it seems North Korea, as you said, is a poster child for what an effective sanctions case could look like. Some have argued that if you do put North Korea into a corner, it could provoke mm -hmm. some type of disaster. How would you Absolutely. We have to, to be we have to be totally prepared for that, completely prepared for that. I completely agree with that observation, Dan. Um, and one of the things we ought to bear in mind is that North Korean leadership, for it, all its seemingly outlandish or even buffoonish appearances to us, plays power politics very effectively. That's why this little impoverished state uh, has nuclear arms at this point. It did this in the face of uh, the international community opposed to this, uh, this result. North Korean leadership games through all sorts of scenarios to the nth degree so that they're very prepared for different sorts of eventualities. Um, if there is a successful or a relatively successful pressure campaign against the DPRK, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that North Korean leadership will play brinkmanship like we haven't seen it yet, because they will see the regime's future as riding on that uh, proposition of breaking the sanctions apart. Another thing which I think we need to be prepared for is another humanitarian crisis in the DPRK if economic pressure is successful. 
there was a terrible famine in North Korea 20 years ago, as you will recall. And North Korea is the only peacetime state in human history, so far as I know, that has, uh, that has suffered a famine while having a literate and urbanized population. This hasn't, there's a, there's a set of one example of this, and that's North Korea. This was in part because of the dysfunction of their economy, but it's also a reflection of North Korea's domestic politics. North Korea stratifies its population by assigning them uh, social castes or classes with very different fates, of the Songbun uh, system. Uh, people in the lowest classes, the hostile classes, are not worth very much to the regime. And I think if we had accurate records, we'd see that almost everybody who perished in the famine in the 1990s was in the uh, despised, distrusted classes at the bottom. Uh, the North Korean government will uh, have no compunction about using the same techniques again, holding the same classes hostage to try to break uh, international sanctions. And we have to be prepared to have intrusive international humanitarian aid to counter that. The North Korean government might not allow intrusive humanitarian aid that actually saved people in the disfavored classes, but we have to be ready to try that. Well, it seems along with the humanitarian crisis, the North Korean government is also responsible for a litany of recorded human rights abuses. It's, it was market, Human rights was markedly absent in this summit. Is there a role for human rights in denuclearization talks? Should it be separate issues? Oh, I think that uh, I think that uh, realist uh, political thinking is very unrealistic about dealing with North Korea in this regard. The uh, the realist uh, conceit is that human rights is a sort of a soft issue that has to be put on the side while we deal with matters of uh, urgent national security. The fact of the matter is, I think, that the human rights nightmare that uh, North Korea's subject population suffers is just the Janus face of the international threats that the regime makes to turn Seoul into a sea of fire or to incinerate Washington or any of the other uh, uh, aspects of what we might call North Korean international statecraft. Um, so not giving the North Korean regime a pass on human rights, I think, is terribly important. One of the reasons the North Korean regime resists uh, discussions of human rights so furiously is that they have Google. They've looked at Nuremberg trial. They know what it means to uh, talk about crimes against humanity, like the UN Commission of Inquiry does about the DPRK. Uh, these are regime-ending uh, risks that they face from human rights. And that's why they don't want to talk about them at all. And that's why they don't want anybody else to talk about them. To his great credit, uh, President Trump has talked about North Korean human rights more than any previous U.S. president, maybe more than all of them together. I haven't checked on that. Um, and that's why it was all the more mystifying that human rights apparently scarcely came up at the, uh, at the summit in Singapore. 
certainly it didn't come up in the joint statement that the two leaders uh, signed. Well, I'm going to engage in a um, potentially an occupational hazard by quoting you back to you. Yeah. Uh, but following the summit uh, on the American Enterprise Institute website, you stated that North Korea, quote, incontestably emerged from the talks better off, end quote. And the United States and its allies, quote, must now move into damage control and salvage mode, end quote. So first of all, um, how did North Korea end up better off? Sure. Uh, a couple of ways. Uh, number one, uh, the pageantry of the summit was a huge gift to Kim Jong-un and his regime uh, in establishing its international legitimacy and international authority. He was, he was treated like uh, not just a world leader, but like a world power instead of like the head of a, uh, a criminal uh, cartel that is uh, responsible for the worst human rights abuses in the world today. Uh, and of course, uh, Kim Jong-un on the North Korean side just pocketed this without any uh, even pretense of reciprocation. The second big gain for North Korea was what was not discussed, what was not in their joint statement. Um, there was nothing in the joint statement about North Korea's nuclear proliferation uh, in the Middle East or its missile proliferation or its chemical weapon proliferation in the Middle East. There was nothing about North Korean cybercrime or drug running or its other illicit activities. Uh, there was nothing about its constant threat to the South there was nothing about its unbroken record of violating all of its international promises. Um, and there was nothing, of course, about human rights or about its abduction of citizens from Japan and other countries. Um, so simply by excluding those items from consideration, that's a great triumph for North Korean diplomacy. Third win for North Korea, I would say, was the language of the joint statement. Because whether or not the U.S. side realized this, uh, the U.S. signed off on North Korean formulations of the problems that were allowed to be mentioned. Uh, take the question of the North Korean nuclear crisis. The U.S. side talks about CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of new North Korean nuclear weapons. Instead, the joint statement dis, uh, went for the formulation of complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. See how that's different? If you poke it a little bit and you press the North Korean side for what they mean there, uh, you say, well, um, South Korea doesn't possess any nukes. They don't want to have any nuclear weapons. They won't agree to have nuclear weapons in their soil. How can South Korea denuclearize? And the North Korean side will say, well, they're allied to a nuclear power. You've got to sever the U.S. ROK uh, alliance or else South Korea is nuclear. And if you take it a little bit further and you say, okay, let's do that, then you guys can denuclearize, right? The North Korean response will be, well, don't go so quickly. Um, this is an arms control question now. And if you and the U.S. are willing to reduce your nuclear arsenal to, say, 30 weapons, we'll consider that. 
Um, so basically, uh, the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is code language for North Korea never denuclearizes. We signed off on that. Uh, likewise, this strange formulation, uh, not English as a first language formulation, this formulation of a peace regime in the Korean Peninsula. What is a peace, peace regime? How come we can't just have plain old-fashioned peace? Or how come we can't have peace treaties between everybody? Two reasons. Because the North Korean side sees a peace regime as definitively meaning the U.S. is out of the peninsula. And secondly, a peace regime does not mean a treaty between a peace treaty between North and South. Because if there were a peace treaty between North and South, the North would have to recognize the existence of the Republic of Korea. And so far, they have never done that since their establishment in 1948, the establishment of the two states. So in all those ways, and in a few other ways, I think the North came out ahead. Um, one of the most mystifying gains and most mystifying American concessions was President Trump's announcement after the summit that the U.S., what he called war games, what he called the provocative war games, would uh, cease. Uh, apparently, our allies had not been told that before the summit. Um, why we would use North Korean propaganda terms for the preparations that we need to protect uh, South Korea against a potential assault from the North, I don't understand. What's even more curious is back in early 2018, Kim Jong-un told South Korean leadership that he understood why these exercises were going to have to continue. He basically said, I'm okay with this. So why all of a sudden throw this away? Uh, I'm absolutely baffled by it. I don't understand why. It seems there are tremendous gains on the North Korean side. Were there any concessions received on the U.S. side? Um, we don't know what was said behind closed doors. Um, there is, uh, there's language in the joint statement about U.S. providing um, security guarantees for the North. We don't know quite what that means. I suppose we'll learn with the fullness of time what that signifies. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, given North Korea's past uh, negotiating behavior, if the U.S. side doesn't think it got some pretty good promises in private from North Korea. But North Korea has a good history of giving promises in private that it never intends to follow through on. So I don't think, I don't think we know if the U.S. gained anything from this. The strongest argument I can see uh, making the U.S. case here is that by establishing some sort of personal rapport at the highest levels of state, uh, something might eventually happen. And that, uh, that talking with the absolutely top North Korean decision maker be the necessary precondition for any sort of movement by the North. But the record, as I read it, is not good for the U.S., and it looks very good for the North coming out of this. It seems the soup of the day is, we'll wait and see. Well, uh, we're, I suppose we're going to have to wait and see, but um, 
already uh, already things have been changed by this uh, by this summit. I mean, you noticed as as everybody else did, Dan, that it only took a couple of hours for the Chinese government uh, to say, "Well, I guess it's time to ease the uh, the sanctions on the north." And before anybody had time to reply, the Chinese government started easing them unilaterally by the, by itself. Uh, so. The situation has been changed by this uh, by this summit, and the North Korean side seems to have some ideas about what the follow-up is. It's quite significant, I think. It's more than just a photo op uh, that Kim Jong-un arrived in Singapore in an Air China plane. That suggests a new level of renewed cooperation between the two states in dealing with one area in which they have a common objective. My impression is that the leadership despise each other personally, but they have some common objectives, and one of these is overturning Pax Americana in Asia. So watch for more cooperation between China and North Korea on phased denuclearization the Chinese formulation. For those who don't follow arms control very well, phased denuclearization means no denuclearization at all. So we've discussed China. Let's bring some of the other stakeholders into the region. South Korea and Japan are close allies. How do we move forward and uh, salvage the damage as you've identified? Uh, my impression is that uh, the Japanese leadership is quite agitated and maybe even alarmed at having been sidelined in the drama that led up to the Singapore summit. Um, uh, the United States had no interest in freezing Japan out, but North Korea, China, and significantly also the South Korean government seem to wish to push Japan to one side. Uh, so the Japan is clearly a loser from the, uh, from the summit outcome to date. Uh, South Korea is a curious, really curious uh, uh, situation at the moment. Um, we have our third bout of sunshine policy in South Korea with the Moon Jae-in administration, and in the two previous uh, administrations under a, a sort of a sunshine theory, uh, relationships with the U.S. were strained, um, understandably, since one of the premises of sunshine policy was it was possible to uh, reduce or eliminate the threat of war through detente and engagement. If that were the case, why do you need American troops around there anymore? Um, the third Sunshine president, uh, Moon Jae-in, has tried to coordinate very closely with the U.S. during the uh, uh, during the year and year and slightly more that he's been in the Blue House. Um, there's a, another aspect of the uh, of the drama, which I don't think we can understand yet. Um, there's what you might call the South's as told to diplomacy. Um, during most of this year, there was no serious direct communication between North Korea and the U.S. What we saw instead 
was the South Korean government talking with North Korean leadership at the highest levels and then going to Washington or talking with people in Washington and tell them, telling them what North Korea had said. So it's a sort of a he said, she said uh, variety of diplomacy. And since the U.S. side, to the best of my knowledge, has never received the transcripts of any of these discussions to actually judge the substance and dialogue that occurred, uh, we can't tell... Um, we can't tell how absolutely accurate and faithful the representations were. We certainly know that uh, the South Korean descriptions of the North Korean positions were very influential in this year's U.S.-North Korea diplomacy. Uh, you know, after the national, after the national security advisor of the uh, South Korean president came to the White House and explained what he said Kim Jong-un wanted to do. Um, President Donald Trump on the spot agreed to a summit with the South. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we've got this, um, we've got this quite, uh, quite unusual situation for South Korean uh, politics and for South Korean international policy in this particular drama. Russia, um, Russia, I think, is still uh, uh, relegated to a distance in this uh, in this drama. Uh, Putin's uh, objective of uh, reasserting the importance of the Kremlin in the Korean Peninsula, which is something that he's talked about practically since he took power, I think is still uh, is still basically a dream, and most of the reassertion of Russian power we see on the, uh, on the western borders of Russia, not on the eastern borders. So we've covered a range of topics now. I want to include, conclude with three rapid-fire okay. questions, if that's all Let's right with you. So number one, how long will it take before the agreement between Trump and Kim is declared void? My my guess is it will take a number of months of intensive dialogue before the U.S. side um, recognizes that the North Korean side is not negotiating in good faith. At that point, I don't know exactly what to expect. I can imagine that the U.S. president will be absolutely infuriated uh, by such a recognition and might want to have a very uh, forceful return to earlier positions. Whether that's going to be possible or not remains to be seen. Before that happens, President Trump uh, has previewed a potential round two of a Trump-Kim summit. If you were advising the president, would you say have it in D.C. or in Pyongyang? Well, the only reason to have it in Pyongyang that I can imagine would be that the U.S. might get an advanced team of a couple of hundred intelligence operatives would be able to learn more about the DPRK than we've ever known before. But uh, there'd be a pretty steep price for that intel. Uh, affording the North Korean leadership an even more unabashed propaganda spectacle than it enjoyed in Singapore it's a pretty steep price. Last question. What's the 
single volume on North Korea that you've gifted most to others? That I've gifted most to others. Um, this this gets us into super nerd corner. Um, <laughs> it's it is probably uh, actually it is certainly uh, Scalapino and what? Communism in Korea Volumes One and Two. Uh, it, it's an extraordinary study. Uh, it's, it's it's about as heavy as a small barbell. I think I think it's a um, almost two thousand pages long. And the remarkable thing is, uh, this study was completed 45 years ago. Um, it is the gold standard. Uh, it leaves everything, I'm afraid, that has been done since then in the shade. And it is the go-to text that anybody serious about studying North Korea has to know. Okay, I know where I'll do my Amazon shopping next. <laughs> Nick, thanks so much for this for your time. This was a terrific discussion. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's a lot of fun for me.